Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Hello, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Hello, Ariana, Vanessa, and Casper. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text friends. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekhile. And this is an Owl Post edition of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. To wit, to woo. Happy New Year, Casper. Happy New Year, Vanessa. Welcome to the new decade. I know. I definitely, when I was a kid, assumed I'd be dead by 2020. So this is great news for me. This is future land. Like, there'll be spaceships in 2020. There'll be zero carbon footprints in 2020. Turns out, it's still here. (laughs) And so are we, continuing with book six. But before we go into the next chapter, we are going to hear from Burns Stamfield, one of my favorite people in the world, who's going to help us think about community like... The Amazing Community in Richmond, Virginia, run by Anna Dixon. It's so wonderful just to see this number of local Harry Potter and the Sacred Text groups continue to grow. So thumbs up to Anna and everyone in the wonderful city of Richmond, where my friend Lindsay also lives. (laughs) Thumbs up emoji or thumbs up in real life? I I think all three, like two thumbs and an emoji. Got it. Wow, (laughs) that's so many thumbs. (laughs) So this week, we're so glad to be joined by the Reverend Burns Stanfield. Burns is the minister at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Boston and a co-chair of the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization. And we got to meet him when he was acting as a denominational counselor at Harvard Divinity School, which means that he advises and supports students in his tradition. And when I arrived at Div School, I didn't have a tradition. So I was just walking around and Burns was sitting at a table. I don't think there were many Presbyterian students that year. And so the table was empty. So I thought, well, I'll go talk to this nice man. And he was (laughs) indeed a very nice man. And I'm so grateful to have become a friend of Burns. And and I'm just so inspired by his work. So welcome Burns to the podcast. (laughs) Ouch. Yeah, nobody at the table. Yeah, we, we've learned from that. Now we call ourselves HDS Presbyterians and Friends. And we have all sorts of folks that affiliate. So that's really smart to try to come up with the strategies, yeah. ways to avoid the future Caspers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Burns, because in my mind's eye, when I think about questions of community and how congregations work, I always think of your church of Fourth Presbyterian in Boston. And I know that, you know, in this moment of growing social disconnection, I think a lot of us are thinking more and more about connection and community. And so uh, I've got a bunch of questions for you about that. 
Would you tell us a little bit about Fourth Presbyterian, first of all? Like, what should we imagine when we hear you talk about this community? Fourth Presbyterian. It's an old church in the city, almost 150 years old, started mainly by immigrants. And it hung in there because they were from other places. And this was this was a home. This was community for them. Mm. And it's a lovely place. It's a uh, boy, how to describe it. Lots of different kinds of people. I've been at one church for 28 years, but it feels like I've had about seven different congregations because hmm. the people keep changing. We're right up the street from two housing projects. So there's a lot of different life stories that hmm. come into our space through that population. But folks come from other parts of Boston as well. And there's always a few folks from Harvard Divinity School that make their way over there and do some kind of internship. But it's just a, a mix economically, a mix racially, a mix politically, a mix theologically. It's a wonderful stew. Well, and that mix is the thing that struck me when I came to visit, because I remember sitting in the pews, you know, not being used to sitting in pews at all and feeling <laughs> a little bit uncomfortable right at the back. But uh, first of all, everyone was so friendly and welcoming. But the thing that really stands out in my memory is that, you know, during the announcements moment, and for many people who who maybe grew up in congregations, you'll remember this, this a time for announcements. And one woman stood up and said, you know what, I'm, I'm leading a campaign, I think it was about affordable housing. You know, she shared a few words, like, please come to this meeting, please sign this petition, blah, blah, blah. And she sat down and kind of turned to the, her friend next to her and smiled. And then the very next announcement was the woman who was sitting next to her just the two of them sitting next to each other. And she then stood up and said, and I'm running the campaign opposing that. And it blew my mind that there were two people who were sitting together in this community who were clearly friends, but who clearly had such big differences of opinion on this issue that they were leading competing campaigns. And you know, in this moment of, of polarization and the challenge that we have of, of crossing divides in so many ways, like, how do you make a community that can do that? Like, how did that happen? How? I'm stumped. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think of it more as a gift that we have. I mm. think the gift is we're in a place where folks from the paths of the city cross. It's about relationship. Maybe I can say that. And I think we are intentional about tending to relationships. And there's an intentionality to one-on-one to -on -one time and building trust. Hmm. A simple tool we use is to designate time to draw names out of a hat and meet each other one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And there is something hmm. to meeting one-on-one -on -one yeah. for a half an hour. Um, the other piece, which maybe is feeling a little more grandiose, aspiring to be open about brokenness, hurts, vulnerability, it takes time to be in a space where that can happen safely. Hmm. But at this point, in, our, in the culture of our community, people can name their brokenness. And we have folks in recovery, we have folks out of prison, but we also have folks that are from really privileged backgrounds, and they will articulate the gift of an addict being open about his or her woundedness because the person who knows they're more privileged has permission to name their hurt. Mm. And the kind of love and support and connection that can happen through that is incredible. 
you know, it's like Leonard Cohen says, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets through. And that is a lived experience, I feel, in, in my experience of my community, my congregation. I don't know that I went into being a minister with that awareness. In fact, I did not. <laughs> but I learned a lot from recovery communities that used our space, and it was a key ingredient to, to the grace that I saw there. And we're now running a trauma ministry, and we're seeing it again and applying it in a new way where folks have all sorts of wounds, and we don't define for people what what is trauma and what is not trauma. People come with hurt and loss, and they talk about it, and healing can happen. Yeah. And Burns, if we, if we kind of take a, a step back and say, like, why should we be in community? What does being in community <laughs> help us with? You know, I, I honestly, I yeah. think I think it's a real question because it's a little scary, you know, to show yeah, up. Yeah, it's scary yeah. to think about, well, talking about what's hard in my life or where where I fall short, you know. Right. Like, what have you seen community do in people's lives? What what has it meant in your life? You know, now there's studies coming out that talk about how important connection and community is, like that one that's saying loneliness is equivalent to whatever, smoking a pack of cigarettes mm -hmm. a day. At some level, we just, we need it. I would, for me, I feel like, I think community is where we truly practice love. Mm. Lots of us from different traditions will say, it is a good thing to love your neighbor, to love people beyond those that you fall in love with or your family or your best friends. Mm. It's a good thing. It's a good value to love your neighbor. But to really do that and get good at it and experience the richness of that, it takes practice. And community, particularly community with different kinds of people, is where one can practice and get better at it, and you hope reap the benefits. It can feel easier to be by yourself. It can feel easier to be with a few like-minded souls. But I really believe in the power of working on love toward folks who vote differently mm -hmm. and think differently and have different kinds of stories. I felt this when I went over to the church. I'd, I'd been in Boston for a while, but in a different part of Boston. I was in the Cambridge side, a part of the city with lots of education and similar political events. Right. When I went to this other part of the city, not the same educational background, not the same stories, not the same political assumptions, and that ended up being a stretch that blessed me mm. again and again. And of course, the stretching doesn't stop because there are other people <laughs> that come over the years. You know, it's, it's different mixes now. South Boston, where my church is, is a very different neighborhood than it used to be. And now I find myself you know, kind of resenting these new folks who are actually <laughs> the way I was when, they were, when I was their age. And I kind of want the old timers. Um, so the stretching doesn't stop. Anyway, I think in community, you, you practice loving. Yeah, I. Well, what's so striking to me is that like it's so rare that we think about going to a place to practice love. I mean, the way I think about church is often like, oh, that's a place that you go to like 
get your spiritual injection for the week, right? right? Like, right, or, right, right. or or we kind of consume it like we might consume a, a movie cinema or like a store or or even education. I mean, I, I think about the way of course, in the Harry Potter books that Hogwarts plays this role of like every new class, there's new kids coming in and the whole system is kind of reconfigured by a new population, right? But that they're held together by a physical structure and by the task of, in their case, education. And in your case, religious life or community life, I'm seeing how different it is to think about going to church as a chance to practice love versus entertainment. Do you know what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, although our music is awfully fun. <laughs> well, because you you were a professional musician, a trumpet player, yes. right? Well, keyboardist and also trumpet. But yeah, you know, I, I had my time touring as a rock and roll guy. Yes, that's that's part of my story. The other thing I love about how you're describing church community is, you know, I was thinking my partner is part of a choir, mm-hmm. and I was like, I think very much that his choir really meets the the standards to which you're describing, and I'm not trying to in any way diminish church, but it is an incredibly diverse group of people. You know, I mean, there are probably 200 people in the choir and from all different backgrounds and all different stories, as Mm -hmm. you say. They are absolutely not for themselves, right? They perform in all different contexts for different communities. And there's a lot of of them having to practice loving each other, right? Right, And frustrating each other and annoying each other and still making music together. And I love the invitation of that, that there are so many ways for us to gather in order to practice loving each other. And I think a lot of our listeners aren't necessarily ready or wanting to go Mm -hmm, to church mm -hmm. or synagogue or mosque. But I even, I feel inspired. I hate leaving the house. And I, I, my favorite (laughs) thing to do is walk the dog. Matt is a very small community of me and her, and she she doesn't really play with other dogs, and I don't talk with other people at the dog park. So I, I feel so called to be like, oh, where can I go and be part of something where I disagree with people but want to practice loving them? Yeah. It's such a lovely call to to go somewhere. Like we go to the gym to practice, you know, getting our cardio and to go somewhere to practice loving. Yeah. Yeah, there there is a hump to get over, I guess, to get out. Yeah. But and I and I experience that hump. I will have times when I want to retreat, but pretty much always when I can get over that, it's good for me. Yeah, my mom always puts it in terms of in a week you'll regret not going, but you right. won't regret having gone, mm. which I uh, gets me every time. You know, I'm 37 years old, and I call my mom, I don't want to do this. And she's like, in a week. I'm like, I know, I know, I'm going. <laughs> um, but I, I also find this very compelling. That it's just an opportunity to practice loving. The final question I have for you, Burns, is, you know, so much of, of the practices that we've learned to do on this podcast and that you know, different religious and spiritual traditions teach are practices that help us become the kind of person that we want to be in the world. And one of the things that I'm always learning is that that it's not a solo process, right? Like you don't become the person that you are on your own, even if you're journaling and even if you're meditating and even if you're doing all of those individual practices, but so often it's the communities that we're in that help us recognize our gifts. You know, I had a really important mentor, Charlotte, when I still lived in London, who said, you know, I just keep noticing you want to lead people in singing during these activist training groups. Like, what's that about? And I hadn't even noticed that. And that was an, a really important step on my path towards divinity school. 
And so I, I wonder if there's anything you can tell us about how how do communities help us become the people that we want to be? How how do they help us discover our gifts? We we know ourselves in each other. We learn about ourselves through each other. Mm. And I think we can see the best of ourselves in these reflections and reactions and relationships with, with others. And that's not a one and done thing. It is a practice. It's meeting weekly or monthly or whatever it is. It's meeting often and seeing that and learning what, what to recognize. Mm. Um, there's a man in my church who has emerged as a leader of bowling. Mm. This is not somebody, how can I describe it? Um, would be unlikely to have a full-time professional job. I'll just put it that way. Loves our community, mm. came to our community first through choir, but developed a passion for organizing bowling. And at first it was men's bowling. And then he decided that wasn't right. So now it's all people's bowling. <laughs> Men, women, young, old, everybody come and bowl. And it is a passion of his, and he's good at it. Hmm. And he's learned that in the context of community, I would say. Hmm. I feel like so often a lot of the people I meet, especially on the pilgrimages that we lead, are um, people looking for their calling. And I love that story because— I don't know why I just like so fundamentally believe that everybody has some sort of call in their life that is a real gift to the world. And if they haven't found it, I just so profoundly believe that they will find it. Mm. And I love that story because it's like it really could be leading bowling. But that is like <laughs> totally. it's such an important contribution to a community yeah. to lead bowling. And like the problem is capitalism and the patriarchy that we like put value judgments on certain gifts being better and more valuable than others. Coordinating bowling is something I would be terrible at, <laughs> like truly terrible. And I'm so glad that there's somebody out there doing that. Yeah. And I I agree with you. I think everybody does have a calling or, or more than one. Right. You might well, have a few. but And it's very, very exciting and a privilege of my particular job to see people discover that. Yeah. That is what All makes that. me most excited is to see people get excited about a calling or a mission or a place mm. yeah. and and develop their leadership too. That's my favorite thing to watch. Or a role in a group, right? Like I can think of people whose calling is to like be the peacemaker in a group and to see everybody's points of view and right? Like a calling doesn't also doesn't necessarily have to be a role of leadership, right? Uh, can I tell you a story? Please. We had this man a few years ago who came every Sunday and sat in the same pew. Um, and he got sick. And he went to the hospital. And I put the word out to people, at, you know, please go visit this person if you can. And people were doing that. All sorts of people were doing that. And this one man texted me after he visited Gail. And this man said in his text, Pastor, I visited Gail, and for some reason, he wanted me to sing. Hmm. And I sang the only song I knew, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. <laughs> and he added another text and said, if the cancer doesn't kill him, 
my voice will. <laughs> oh, God. Because, <laughs> in fact, he wasn't a skilled singer, you know. Mm. However, it, it, I, I kept thinking about this. It was so odd because th- there were a number of people who visited Gale who were skilled singers, mm. who were soloists. And so why didn't, why didn't Gale ask these other people to sing? And then I realized, I just pictured the congregation. Gale always sat in this particular pew, and this other man who visited sat right behind him. Mm. And so what Gale really wanted was his place in the community, yeah. in the pew, where this guy sang behind him in whatever pitch he sang in, right? And he just really... That's what he needed, that incarnation of his community. Well, I think that's what we all need. Um, And I'm so glad that you're with us today, Burns. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and stories. And um, just thanks for being a friend as we make this journey through the the Harry Potter books and ask these big questions together. Thank you. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. I really loved Burns' definition of being in community is a commitment to practice loving. Hmm. And I really love now retroactively saying that that's why we <laughs> have voicemails at our show is to practice loving. But it is that idea, right, that we need a community in order to treat a text as sacred in order to love things well. And that's why we love doing these Outpost episodes where we include multiple community voices in one episode. And so we have a number of voicemails for you today. And um, this Owl Post is actually a whole Owl Post of blessings. We thought it's the new year. Everyone needs a blessing. To quote Oprah, you get a blessing (laughs) and you get a blessing. Check under your seat. There's a pair of keys to your blessing. (laughs) That's absolutely right. And our first two blessings are for Draco, starting with Karen. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text friends. I feel like your family. My name is Karen, um, and I am from Wisconsin, and I'm a giant Harry Potter fan, and I so appreciate your podcast. I'm calling about um, the episode uh, Elf Tales, and I'm interested in the idea that Vanessa raised that Draco is perhaps not forgivable, um, redeemable, because of his actions in hurting Katie Bell and Ron accidentally in his attempts to follow through on Voldemort's orders and hurt and kill um, Dumbledore. I am probably guided by Tom Felton's portrayal in the movies, but that's actually one of my favorite parts of the movies, even though I'm a book girl, is watching Tom Felton's Draco literally fall apart before our eyes, and I see him as a child who is only beginning when it's too late to figure out that he's on the wrong side and that he is stuck between literally death or death. And I just really want to reach through the pages of the book or through the screen and hug him and mother him the way Molly mothers Harry. And I feel like only at the end does um, his mother get it. And Draco get it. And I just do have a lot of empathy for that. Although, Vanessa, I greatly appreciate your thoughts because I had never thought of that before. And so I'd like to bless Draco because he is stuck. And I think it's easy for us to forget that these are children. And it's such a beautiful and troubling story 
And thank you for this podcast. I, I so appreciate it and greatly look forward to it every week. Bye. Casper, you're not wearing your Draco Malfoy is my boyfriend shirt, but I still feel like you should respond first. Are you actually I literally wearing am wearing it. Oh, my <laughs> God. You're wearing a rugby shirt. I didn't see. So you are literally wearing your Draco Malfoy is my boyfriend shirt. So why don't you respond to this first? Because she's talking about your boyfriend. I mean, I, I think the reason why it's so interesting to think about him and why Karen's voicemail just makes so much sense to me. And it's a provocation to think about ourselves. And to think about the times when we have royally screwed up, right? Last year, I really let down a friend. I did something that just really broke trust with him. And I feel, I think like Draco, that like, am I even worthy of forgiveness, right? Like there are these moments when when we are so confronted with our own shortcomings. And I think what's happened to Draco is he literally cannot see another way. Like there is no alternative for him. And so he's stumbling ahead badly in a way that ultimately doesn't serve him or the people he loves. And oh, I just I just so resonate with what Karen's saying is that my only response is like to hug him. I mean, it's also disgust, right? And outrage. And also in terms of all I can do, kind of like what Burns maybe was saying, is like to witness him and to remind him of the possibility of love. I don't know. I'm frustrated by my answer here. Help me out. I mean... I agree with you that what he needs is sort of like meetings with the social worker and to be taken out of this home, which has been taken over by a cult. And there are some systems that are really failing Draco. Mm. And then the other part of me is torn because I think that this might be really like old fashioned and like not appropriate thinking anymore, but part of me believes that loving someone is holding them to a high standard. Oh, I think you're completely right. And I and I think accountability and love can go hand in hand. And I think, I guess I feel like Lily did with Snape all those years ago of mm. like, Draco, you're going away that I can't follow you. Mm. I know he's in an impossible situation in which Snape was not in the same impossible situation. And I know that he could do better. I am not judging him. I am in that like really annoying mom way. Like I'm disappointed in him. (laughs) And for him, I think he's going to have to live with the regrets of this for the rest of his life. And I wish he was making better choices so that he didn't have to break this trust with himself. Mm. So, yeah, I think this is a systems failure. I think that this is a relational failure. But I also think that Draco is really deeply failing himself here. Mm. He could go to Dumbledore, right? Yeah, he could. And he doesn't believe he could. And I think that's that's the challenge. And that matters. And that and it does matter. And I actually, you know, it's an indictment of Dumbledore. If he already has suspicions and we we assume he has many suspicions of who's behind these attacks. If Draco is even in his top 10 ideas, he should seek Draco out. I really think he should, because often when when we have kind of found ourselves in an imprisonment of our own ideas, certainly I can't get myself out of them. I need other people to help me with that. Dumbledore does send Snape believing that Snape is his best bet. That's true. And Snape tries, right? That's true. I mean, I do wonder if an outstretched hand from Dumbledore would mean something different. I guess I just also have compassion for Dumbledore I often don't believe that I am the one who would be helpful. Mm -hmm. 
I think all we can do with the text is to see Draco and just to see, knowing this is not the end of his story, but to see the fullness of its horror and also the deep ambivalence in which he is in this position. And we have one other voicemail on Draco that I think can maybe help us think about him. And this one is from Natalia. Hello, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Natalia, and I'm calling from Carlsbad, California. Hermione Granger and Draco Malfoy are my favorite characters in the series, and I'm really happy that we're in book six because we're finally allowed to focus on Draco and his tragedy. I'm responding to the chapter on stubbornness, and I want to send a blessing to Draco Malfoy, and I have a story to accompany this. So about four years ago, when I was 14, um, I was just beginning high school, and I had this really devastating accident where I fell from my third-story balcony. My entire body was broken from my feet to my pelvis, and I ended up shattering my spinal cord. And because of that, I lost a lot of mobility in my legs and my feet, so I have to wear leg braces and use a crutch to get around. Um, I went through a serious hell during this time, and I was staying in and out of the hospital for these four years. And the reason I want to bless Draco is because I understand that feeling of being robbed of your childhood that he certainly must be feeling right now. Vanessa, you said on that episode that Draco has this combination of fear and frustration that is disguised as a stubbornness, and it's directed at Narcissa and everyone else for treating him like a child when they all know that he's set up for this very adult suicide murder mission. Um, And every time I read this book, I so empathize with the loneliness and the darkness that Draco must be feeling right now. In a way, this is how... Draco has been crippled. The Malfoy patriarch Lucius, who was the crutch of the family, is gone to Azkaban. And now this revenge mission lays on the shoulders of this 16-year-old boy. And I think about the previous books where Draco was a bully and a little bit mean, but he always seemed to have some sort of short-lived joy through these pranks. And I just think about how he doesn't ever smile again in these last books. Um... Draco has been crippled in this really terrible and lonely way, and there's no way you can return to your youthhood or childhood once it's gone, at least not in the way which people really can excuse you for it. Like my privilege of once being able-bodied has been torn away from me, Draco's privilege of being protected by the supremacy which he grew up in has shattered, and now can really be the reason for his death. Because I spent the entirety of my teenagehood working on surviving and recovering, I'm constantly grieving for those lost teen years. When I was learning to sit up on my own, my friends were getting their licenses and going to parties and just living like teenagers. And currently, you know, I'm 19 and I remember what it was like to run and dance and wiggle my toes. And I'm positive that Draco remembers what it was like to be mischievous and careless and smiling We both have that experience of before and after. So this blessing goes out to Draco and anyone at whatever age right now who has had their childhood robbed from them and were forced to grow up much too young. Now we grieve this empty longing and aloneness that we will always carry. I think Draco understands that getting stripped of all these years and pressed to be an adult is like going to war. You really don't come back the same. 
But thank you so much for all that you've done with these stories. They've become such a presence in my life, and I'm so grateful for all your work. Thank you. Natalia, thank you so much for that voicemail. And I think, you know, there's a line in Virginia Woolf's novel To the Lighthouse that 50 pairs of eyes are not enough to see this one woman, Mrs. Ramsey. And I think that you are helping us recognize that, you know, 50 pairs of eyes are not enough to see Draco. The other thing that really strikes me about what you're saying, Natalia, is that Draco was called to do this really adult thing of this murder-suicide. But I actually think that as the text talks about death, right, it's not even an adult thing. It is an inhuman thing. He's asked to do something that is so inhumane that it creates a horcrux. Mm. He's just being asked to murder. And like that in and of itself is a crime, right? It's not even something that adults have to deal with. I'm by all accounts, an adult. And not only have I never, but God willing, I never will be put in such a difficult situation. Natalia, first of all, I'm just so sorry about your accident. I can only imagine, you know, the shadow of that experience that still is over your life in so many ways. I had an accident where I fell from a pier onto some rocks 20 feet below just over a decade ago. And, you know, especially for those four months that I was in a wheelchair, like it really... It shifted my perspective on the world. And and to some extent, because I've been able to have a pretty much full recovery, it's, you know, some of those things have have faded, but I know for sure that it changes you. And I, you know, I, I just so appreciate that you're using that difficult experience to help us understand Draco's perspective and, and the loss that he might feel. I mean, to some extent, I wonder if, if Draco even knows a different world is possible for him. I think this is the thing that both in Karen's voicemail and in yours that I'm thinking more and more about is like just how his self-image is so limited and his his sense of who he is and what he can be is so horribly small and that that makes him feel like there's no way out of the situation that he's in. Thank you so much, Natalia. We really appreciate your beautiful voicemail. Our next voicemail is from Kara and she is offering a blessing for someone who you've maybe heard of, Hermione. Hello, Ariana, Vanessa, and Casper. My name is Kara, and I'm calling from the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I'm calling about Chapter 11, Hermione's Helping Hand, specifically the scene where Hermione confunds McLagan so Ron will get a spot on the Quidditch team. Vanessa especially was pretty gleefully supportive of Hermione in this scene, but I completely disagreed. I couldn't help thinking, Vanessa, that your support for Hermione revealed your loyal Hufflepuff nature. And yes, I'm saying this even though I was at the absolutely amazing DC live show last week for your shocking house announcement, which, by the way, I thought was fantastic. You looked at this chapter through the theme of pleasure, but because I was thinking about Vanessa's reaction being born out of loyalty, I want to reconsider the scene in terms of loyalty and also betrayal. I want to share a story from my own life that's kind of silly but relevant. Several years ago, I was with one of my best friends at a bar that was offering discounted drinks to people who lived in the neighborhood, which I did. My friend, who lived on the other side of town, asked if I would pretend her drink was for me so she could get the discount too. It was a local family-owned bar, and I didn't feel right wrongfully depriving them of money, even if it was just a few dollars. There are certainly times in my past when I've ignored my own moral compass, but it's something I'm increasingly unwilling to do. So I told her no. She did a double take, and she laughed at me a little, but she respected my position. I have looked back at this moment a lot over the years and wondered if I'm not a loyal enough friend. But here's the interpretation I've come to. Maybe my loyalty to my friend that night wasn't in helping her get something she wanted, 
My loyalty was that I trusted her to love me and continue valuing our friendship, even though I was denying her something. So back to Hermione. The issue I have with her jinxing McLagan is not so much that Hermione broke the rules, although she did, but more importantly, that Hermione allowed her crush on Ron to lead her to betray her own moral compass. This makes her behavior troubling in a way that it wouldn't be if the same action had been taken by Fred or George, who don't care about following rules. When we start to do things we think are wrong in order to help out our friends or our bosses or our government, that can be a slippery slope, but it's also an easy one to start down. So I want to offer a blessing to Hermione and also to any listener out there who's ever found themselves betraying their values in order to impress someone or make someone happy. May you find your way back to yourself and may you surround yourself with people like my friend that night at the bar who see you and respect your values and help you be someone you're proud to be. Kara, let me just start by saying that I hardcore disagree with you. I do not think Hermione is betraying her values here at all. She has become a rule breaker long ago. See Rita Skeeter. See Dumbledore's army. See the scars on Marietta's forehead. Justice for Marietta and not for McLagan. And I think that she has chosen loyalty as her value a really long time ago. She you know, decided that, I mean, the famous quote, right? Like, love and friendship is more important than cleverness. And so I think just on a factual, non-philosophical level, I, I don't think that Hermione is going against her values here. But I think the heart of your blessing is this question of when are we changing and growing in our values and when are we betraying our values? And that is a much more complicated question to me. You know, I I'm always reminded of one of my favorite quotes from Jane Eyre, which is, laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. I guess I think that in the moment of crisis, when our body is rising in mutiny against our previously held laws and principles, we should fall back in what our laws and principles were before we were put in that situation. And then when we're out of crisis mode, that is then the opportunity to think, was that the wrong law in principle when we're sort of out of that moment of crisis? Because I just think, you know, as we've talked about with Slughorn, I think a lot can be solved in debrief, right? I think that if you in that moment with your friend had said, my law in principle is loyalty and so I'm going to give you this discount and then – The next day, you could have talked to your friend and been like, do you know what? I still feel icky about that. And like, I'm not going to do that again. Is that okay? I love you. Right. I think a lot of these things can be negotiated after the case. But I do think that our our laws and principles should be changing all the time. We're growing and changing people. I will say I really admire you just being like, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. That doesn't feel right. I, I think it's you know, kind of like Neville in book one, right? Like sometimes it's hardest to say to our friends, like, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. And I don't want you to do that because I think, I think you're better than this. I mean, that's really brave and it's not going to go over well most of the time. And I'm, I'm glad that for Kara. It's brave to say, I won't do this. It's not brave to lecture. I would feel fine if a friend was like, uh, it makes me uncomfortable. I'd be like, oh, totally. Thanks for telling me. The last thing I want to do is make somebody else feel uncomfortable. But if they were like, and it should make you feel uncomfortable too, I'd be like, sit on it. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, like, I think it's 
Like culture is formed when people agree to behave in a certain way together. And I think if we're going to be friends, I need you to behave in a way that's ethical. So what I feel comfortable saying is that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't want to be a part of it. What I don't feel comfortable saying is like, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Unless I'm willing to end the friendship over it. Because I have once been at a lunch where somebody said something and I was like, whoops. And I am going to tell them they crossed the line so that they can apologize or not. And they did not. And friendship was over. It was a hateful thing that they said. Either I have to accept you as my friend or not. I just hate proselytizing. And let me just say, we started arguing this point. In no way did I hear Kara, you saying, and then I turned to my friend and said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like you were just living to your value. But I just, it made me start to think about my values have changed a lot over the years. And I think my values have become better because of my friends. And I would hate to think that I would have to stick to values dogmatically. Our next voicemail is a blessing for Harry from Christoffel. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast and uh, also for the Women of Harry Potter podcast, which I love just as much. I wanted to share a reaction that I had had to both the resilience and superstition episode, specifically around the way that Harry is responding with quite a bit of degree of intensity around his uh, pursuit of Malfoy and the perhaps superstitious attachment that he has to uh, his potions textbook. Because what it reminds me of a lot is the things that we do when responding to very difficult situations, in his case, his loss to Sirius. It reminded me of when I moved to Boston six years ago to be with a man that I thought I was going to marry. And within three months of my arrival there, he had developed such severe mental health issues that he had no space for a relationship, had no space for anybody, really. And there I was in a city where I didn't know almost anybody, but I had gotten a job at Harvard University. And as a foreigner, um, I'm from South Africa, getting a job at the Harvard University was astounding. And what I then did is I just became a bit of a Harvard fanatic. And if you were to ask me about my first year in Boston, I can tell you a lot about every glitzy and glamorous thing that Harvard presented to me, but I can tell you almost nothing else about my time in Boston and the empty apartment, which we no longer shared. And what I what I think about is just, we choose sometimes to get obsessed or superstitious about something as a form of resilience, just to get us through day to day. For And I see that in the way that Harry is doing it with his potions textbook and his pursuit of Malfoy, which at the time of those chapters, at least, is a little irrational. So I just wanted to offer up a blessing to anybody doing what they need to do to get through very hard times and getting giving themselves mental strength and mental barriers until they're ready to deal with their loss or their trauma. Thank you again. And we always look forward to your next episode. Oh, first of all, Christopher, I'm just sorry that that whole move happened in such a difficult way. And I mean, I do this all the time. I think I've talked about before how I listen to sports podcasts, especially podcasts about Leeds United and tennis that I just, I get very obsessed about like match statistics and all sorts of things that 
make me feel good when other things in life are hard. And I noticed that when then the things that I've started getting obsessed about, which I know don't really matter, when they go wrong, it's like totally crushing. Because I'm like, no, that's not why I'm getting obsessed about this. This is supposed to be a good thing to get obsessed about. So I definitely understand that reading of what's happening here with Harry and Draco. That makes a lot of sense. And maybe it's precisely that he keeps disappearing off the Marauders map that makes it a stimulating obsession, right? There's something that's unknown. There's something that's changing. Maybe that's partly why it's such a helpful obsession for Harry. The other thing that I love, Christoffel, about your blessing is that it's such a generous reading of some really destructive behavior within Harry and some behavior that honestly frightens me. It is not only destruct- self-destructive behavior, but it's it can become dangerous behavior. And I love that you're bringing compassion to that I think often when people are acting self-destructively, we start to panic, understandably so. And so compassion can be thrown out the window. And I think one of the gifts of treating a text as sacred is that we get to offer compassion even in scary moments. And I think that that's such a beautiful invitation. So thank you so much for that just really generous reading. Our last voicemail today is from Rachel, who has a beautiful blessing for Neville. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Rachel from Tampa, Florida, and I had a moment today that made me really want to bless Neville. I'm in nursing school and I'm set to graduate with a BSN in May of next year, but I still don't feel prepared. Uh, I feel really out of my depth. I went from being an A student uh, to being happy with just not failing, and I feel very awkward and unskilled in the clinical setting. And today at the hospital, during my rotation, I just made a couple like small mistakes, but then I got in my head, so I was making bigger mistakes. And then through something that wasn't entirely my fault, I did end up getting yelled at by a nurse, which you know obviously made things worse. And I just felt very clueless and embarrassed. And I noticed that I was physically shrinking myself in like an attempt to not take up any space. And probably because I was listening to the podcast on the way to the hospital, in this moment, I just... I really thought of Neville, who throughout the books we see struggle with like basic wizarding skills and he's he's um, mocked by his classmates and he's intimidated and harassed by a professor, uh, but he keeps showing up, you know, and he accepts help from Hermione and he commits himself to Dumbledore's army and he doesn't let the trio leave him out of going to the ministry. And then we know later in book seven that, you know, he steps up in a really big way. And I just want to bless Neville for his perseverance despite things not coming naturally to him because it doesn't stop him from trying and we know in the end that he does end up discovering his strengths and I just really hope for myself that I can do the same and through Neville as an example I feel really called to to keep showing up to allow myself to make mistakes um, you know to take up space and to, to keep trying and hopefully I will too um find strength and confidence in my own abilities. Thank you so much for the podcast. Rachel, I have so many things to say to you. First of all, C's get degrees, and all you need is a degree. A's are for people who try too hard. Number two, you are a student in a clinical setting. You were supposed to be making mistakes. That is why you were there, is to learn and be making mistakes. Good. Keep doing that. Just keep it up. And I love that you were telling yourself this positive story of like, I'm going to just keep showing up. Mm. I think that that is a recipe for success. 
and I hope to have you as my nurse one day. You sound like a very empathetic person who is just going to be wonderful at taking care of people and who is still in school and is struggling in school. School is the worst. Rachel, I'm so glad you sent it in. Keep going. Everyone who is in school or working on a different project or in a difficult relationship, I hope I hope we can take those words to heart. Just keep going. You're doing great. And it's like a religious act to show up, right? In, in Judaism, you need minion. You need 10 people in order for a sacred ritual to take place. And so like literally just your body is enough. And I think that that is right. When you're in school and practicing, like just show up. That is enough. You are doing enough. I love you, Rachel. That's all. <laughs> Well, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about this and every episode. Come and join the wonderful community of people supporting us on Patreon. We could not make the show without you. And we're shaking our tears up. Check out our social media for more info and sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear the new rewards. You can always leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Who knows? Maybe you'll be in our next Outpost episode. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 21, The Unknowable Room, through the theme of affirmation. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is the great Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by PRX. We'd like to thank Karen, Natalia, Kara, Christoffel, and Rachel for this week's voicemails, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. And of course, a special thank you this week to Burns Stanfield for coming into the studio on a really gross winter day and sharing brilliant things with us. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. To wit, to woo. I love that you're sticking to that. Do it. Did I do that last time as well? <laughs> you do it every time. <laughs> I have such small repertoire. <laughs> Consistent. It's ritual. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs>